Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Vaccines versus virus. Politicians from Texas to Berlin balancing safety with economics. Taxing times, the UK unveils more COVID stimulus but warns of higher taxes ahead. And inbox interference. Microsoft accuses China of a cyber attack. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us as always. The calendar may say March, but America, I have to say, is ready to fast forward to the end of May when President Biden says there will be enough vaccines for all adults. That's great news for the United States. But what about the rest of the world? Well, coming up on the show, the president of UPS International will be discussing vaccine equity and their efforts to get 20 million vaccine doses to healthcare workers and others in some of the hardest to reach places in the world. For now, let's take a look at what global stocks are doing. They're paying earlier gains as bond yields firm up, perhaps reacting to some encouraging services sector data around the world. India and China both in expansion mode last month. Japan and Europe also saw some improvement too. We've also got the latest on the UK budget too, as the government announces additional support for struggling small businesses and workers. And speaking of workers, a weaker than expected 117,000 private sector jobs added to the US economy last month. This, of course, as the US Senate prepares to debate the near $2 trillion COVID aid bill. These numbers suggest help is still required. All around the world, as we're discussing, leaders continue to juggle vaccine delivery with handling the current outbreak. Brazil recording its highest one-day death toll yesterday with more than 1,700 people lost to the disease. And in Germany... They may keep the lockdown restrictions in place for another three weeks amid a slower vaccine rollout there. We'll get the latest from Germany later in the show. The bottom line is we have come a long way in handling this virus and the science of responding, but there's still a long way to go. Let's get to the drivers. On the same day that President Biden made his vaccine promise, the CDC warned of a potential new surge in cases. Texas and Mississippi rolled back. COVID-19 restrictions, as Lucy Kafanov reports. Shipments of the third coronavirus vaccine arriving in Texas, as the governor says he's loosening restrictions in just one week. Effective next Wednesday, all businesses of any type are allowed to open 100%. Also, I am ending the statewide mask mandate. The announcement frustrating some local leaders. To put it in very stark terms, it makes no sense. It's mind-boggling, given where we are. And in Mississippi, the governor also lifting mask mandates. This new order removes all of our county mask mandates 
and allows businesses to operate at full capacity without state-imposed rules or restrictions. As more states roll back restrictions, health experts warn... It's just irresponsible and goes against science to try to open up. The White House is asking Texas and others to keep safety measures in place. We think it's a mistake to lift these mandates too early. Uh, Masks are saving a lot of lives. Two, one, vaccinate. Meanwhile in Ohio, a single shot of history with the first Johnson & Johnson vaccines administered. It's definitely a game changer. The problem we have right now is, as you know, there are only about 4 million doses available, so they really need to ramp up production. President Joe Biden using the Defense Production Act to speed the manufacturing process, making a deal with Merck to help pharmaceutical competitor Johnson & Johnson produce its single-dose vaccine. We're now on track to have enough vaccine supply for every adult in America by the end of May. The president also asking states to prioritize teachers and school staff on their vaccine lists, an effort to allow more classrooms to reopen safely. We want every educator, school staff member, child care worker to receive at least one shot by the end of the month of March. Biden urging the public to keep wearing masks and following safety protocols. There is light at the end of the tunnel. But we cannot let our guard down now. We must remain vigilant. Health experts agree as new highly infectious variants spread across the nation. There's a race between these variants and getting vaccinated. And we've just got to push and push with that and not remove uh, these public health measures that have been helping us to reduce the transmissibility. CNN's health, Elizabeth Cohen, joins me now. Um, Elizabeth, the statements there from the healthcare officials were pretty clear. It makes no sense. Uh, It's irresponsible. We're all excited about the proliferation of vaccines and the accelerated timetable, but removing mask mandates? Does any of this make sense? Is Texas ready? No, from a science point of view, from a public health point of view, Julia, it makes absolutely no sense to tell people they can take off their masks. Why in the world would you want to do that? Again, let's take a look uh, to reiterate what Lucy just said about what Texas is doing. They are lifting the mask mandate, and they are also saying that businesses can all be open at full capacity. Now, in a press release, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas said, well, we can do this because now we have the tools to protect Texans from the virus. And among those tools, he mentioned vaccination. But let's take a look at how Texas is doing with the vac- with vaccinations. Only seven percent of the Texas population has been vaccinated. Seems like a very odd time to be telling people, ah, take off your mask when only 7% of the population is vaccinated. And they still in Texas are having more than 200 deaths per day on average when you look at the past week. Why in the world would you not want to protect the people in your state? It is the riddle of the ages. Can't figure it out. He's got more than 200 people dying every day in his state, yet he's saying, eh, take off your masks. Doesn't make any sense. Julia? We've often talked on this show about balancing the virus with the economy, protecting jobs, protecting people that aren't earning money. But the idea that you would strip back on a protection like a mask mandate, to your point, uh, uh, we reiterate, it, it makes no sense. That's Texas. What about the rest of the country? 
You know, well, Julie, before I talk about the rest of the country, I want to add that you're absolutely right. There's this balancing act that's been going on for months and months now. But having people wear masks doesn't hurt the economy. Yes. So opening up businesses, there's at least <laughs> some economic. But why does it hurt the economy if you ask someone to put a mask on? I mean, it, it, I don't know what school he went to that taught him that. But apparently that's what Governor Abbott thinks. It doesn't make any sense. But let's talk now about the rest of the country, because we keep hearing the news that cases have gone down in the U.S. recently. And while that's true, no one should think, oh, phew, we're home free. We are not home free. It is still not a great situation in the U.S. Let's take a look at those numbers. While the vaccination uh, program has been going faster, uh, still, we only have um, about 8 percent of the population vaccinated. And there are still thousands of people dying every day. And so when you have those numbers, you can say, yeah, maybe it's better than when it was really horrible in November and December, but still it is not great. Julia? No, still have to stay safe and protect yourselves and we will get there, but we're not there yet. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much for that update there. Thanks. To the UK now, the Chancellor vowed to do whatever it takes to get the economy through the pandemic. He announced the extension of many of the economic rescue measures into the autumn, including the furlough scheme and grants for businesses. But the Chancellor also warned that the bill for all the borrowing will have to be paid. Scott McLean joins us now on all of this. Scott, just walk us through the details here. Let's talk about the spending first to support the economy. The worst recession in, what, 300 years. It's going to take monumental size spending. And then we'll talk about paying the bill. Sure. Yeah, it's tough to imagine a more consequential budget here in the UK than the one that was just delivered by the Chancellor Rishi Sunak in the House of Commons this afternoon, Julia. Uh, We are talking about borrowing that has not taken place on this kind of a scale since the world wars. The pandemic has killed off 700,000 jobs. Almost 5 million people are reliant in some way on the government to subsidize their wages. And so the Chancellor says that, look, things are not looking great financially, but they could have been a lot worse were it not for the vaccination program. Listen. The NHS, deserving of immense praise, has had extraordinary success in vaccinating more than 20 million people across the United Kingdom. And combined with our economic response, one of the most comprehensive and generous in the world, this means the Office for Budget Responsibility are now forecasting, in their words, a swifter and more sustained recovery than they expected in November. The OBR now expect the economy to return to its pre-COVID level by the middle of next year, six months earlier than previously thought. So all of that being said, this country is still under lockdown restrictions. And so the chancellor made clear that there would have to be more spending to cushion the economic impacts of the ongoing pandemic. Some 65 billion pounds on top of the almost 300 billion that the government has spent thus far. So the furlough scheme, which where the government subsidizes up to 80 percent of someone's wages who's been laid off due to the, the pandemic, is being extended into the fall till the end of September. Uh, businesses are eligible for grants of some 18, up to 18,000 pounds. They're extending business holiday rates or the business rates holiday, excuse me. And they're also extending a tax break on home purchases into the fall as well. So why the fall when the government is saying that, look, things should be uh, fully reopened or the last of the restrictions should be gone by late June? 
Well, that's because the chancellor says, Julia, to accommodate even the most pessimistic forecast for reopening. So the dates that the government has given thus far, well, those are the best case scenario, not the worst. Yeah, fantastic. Set the bar relatively low and hope to exceed expectations. Speaking of that, the corporation tax hikes that were expected were also met with perhaps some funky mathematics here and what the government is calling the biggest business tax cut in modern British history, you just have to invest in growth and in jobs. Talk me through this, because this is a fascinating uh, sort of interchange between what's going on for corporations in the UK going forward, too. Yeah, we're going to have to do a little bit of math to figure out what the implications of this one will be, Julia. But the bottom line is that personal income taxes are not going to go up, but the tax brackets or the tax thresholds will be frozen in place a year from now, which will end up raising more money for the Treasury as inflation continues to rise. Corporate tax rate, rates, as you mentioned, will go up for large corporations above a, a certain, a certain uh, profit threshold from 19% up to 25%. Most small businesses won't be affected by this. And here's the funky math part that you mentioned. Well, businesses uh, that have cash sitting around, and there are a lot of them, the Chancellor acknowledged, that have done quite well during the pandemic. He's trying to unlock the, the cash reserves by making sure that it's invested in this country. And so uh, companies can get back, they can have a, what he's calling a super deduction, meaning they can deduct 130% of what they invest in the UK for the next two years. And only then will those higher rates take effect, Julia. Yes, encourage some spending for those that can in order to uh, ultimately boost growth and the cost, of course, higher corporation taxes. Um, great work analyzing that for us, Scott, rather you than me. Scott McLean in London, thank you. All right, it's a new day, a new international cyber attack. And this time, the target was Microsoft. The company says hackers linked to the Chinese government gained access to email accounts. Paula Monica joins us now. Paul, I love that you and I are discussing this. And this was one of the points that came out of the blog post that Microsoft wrote. They said, look, these kind of things have happened before. We've just not talked about them this time. So the communication is good. But what more do we know about this hack attack? It's obviously great that Microsoft is alerting people to this threat, and it is concerning because uh, the worry here is that Microsoft's exchange, so email running on servers at corporate networks, they were quick to point out that this is not affecting the cloud-based version of uh, Microsoft Outlook and other email applications. There have been some potential data breaches and vulnerabilities and you know companies ranging from law firms and defense contractors all use Microsoft Exchange so it is a concern that this company uh, is uh, citing a group that it's named Hafnium uh, which is a you know a reported to be a Chinese based organization that is using servers in the US to do this hacking is behind this. And, uh, you know, Microsoft's going so far to say that it could be even state-sponsored, even though China has, uh, you know, re refuted that. And China, of course, not shy about responding to this accusation. Exactly. We have a, a statement from a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson uh, today, and he said, China wishes relevant media and companies take a professional and responsible attitude and base characterizations of cyber attacks on ample evidence rather than groundless guesses and accusations. Clearly here, Julia, China, you know, fighting back and saying that, no, we are not involved in this. I think that the State Department 
of the Biden administration may beg to differ. And we'll see whether or not there are uh, you know, any uh, you know, tough words that come out of Washington as a result of this. But this is obviously all on the heels of concerns about the hack of solar winds and uh, you know what's happened there with many uh, you know government agencies being affected. You know that appears to be based from Russia, not China. I mean, there's so much in this, and we could talk about this for the entire show. Just in light of the conversations over the last two weeks, the fact that the cloud-based version of the service wasn't impacted is fascinating because we've spoken to IBM and Microsoft in the last couple of weeks. Um, but also, I think, in light of speaking to the FireEye CEO, who said, we have to be talking about this. Every time something like this happens, we have to be talking about it, just so that there's a greater awareness of how often it's happening and that companies need to respond. We need to protect ourselves better. With more and more people working from home, obviously, right. and sharing critical data on Outlook, uh, you know, cloud-based versions of software, it's good that the cloud was not impacted. But obviously, you'd have to think that hackers are looking very closely at trying to infiltrate the various cloud networks of the likes of Microsoft, IBM, Google, et cetera. Absolutely. Download the software patch or the fix ASAP. That's the message, too, from Microsoft. All right, Paul and Michael, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, so to come here on First Move, shipping giant UPS on its plans to deliver 20 million doses of vaccines to the world's neediest. And a universal basic income experiment suggests combating poverty with cash payments works. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. stocks have turned lower as the bond yields rise once again. We've got choppy trading going on, as you can see, as investors weigh encouraging news on vaccine availability on the one hand versus uncertainty over how a strengthening economy and massive new fiscal aid in the United States will play out in the bond markets. It's the push and pull of those two things. Now, aggressive vaccine rollouts could further improve corporate bottom lines, too. Shares of car service firm Lyft rallying pre-market after saying ridership is on the rebound. It just had its best week since lockdowns began. And U.S. GDP expectations are getting a lift, too. The Atlanta Fed now predicting a 10 percent jump in Q1 growth. That's an annualized number, perhaps an even bigger bounce later in the year if the U.S. reaches its vaccine distribution goals. Well, that's the United States. But let me tell you, the current rate of global vaccine distribution is around six million doses a day, which means it would take over five years to achieve global herd immunity. Getting doses to a top priority groups in all countries quickly would make the world safer far sooner which is where shipping giant UPS comes in. It's announced a new partnership with COVAX and Gavi to deliver 20 million doses to countries in need. And joining us now is Scott Price, the president of UPS International. Scott, great to have you with us. Fantastic news on this announcement too. Talk to me about the role UPS is going to play in doing this and whether you can give us a sense of timing to getting these vaccines out to people. Thanks, Julie. And as you mentioned, uh, it Five years is too long, uh, and we believe that we can play a critical role. So through the UPS Foundation, uh, we have donated uh, 
our transportation, uh, ultra low freezer space, which is critical uh, in this uh, particular instance of these vaccines. Plus, we've loaned some UPS executives uh, to cover four continents of uh, Africa, Asia, South America, and the distribution in Europe. We play the middle role, which is between the manufacturing site to the dosing site, which is a very critical aspect in terms of these time-sensitive uh, and temperature-controlled uh, we have technology, we call it UPS Premier, which allows 100% visibility throughout our entire network through technology, so that uh, if something goes wrong, like weather instances, uh, which uh, was a bit of an issue here in the U.S. a few weeks ago, we're able to ensure that we keep dry iced and make sure that those vaccines uh, stay uh, in good shape until it finally gets to the dosing site. And we will now do that globally. We're already doing this in 33 countries, uh, but through COVAX and Gavi, we have an opportunity to balance maybe the equity uh, and ensure that there is equitable distribution of vaccines around the world. Oh, it's amazing. There are so many pieces to this too. And the cold storage is, to your point, a critical element if we're dealing with the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines. Obviously a different situation if it's Johnson & Johnson when they become available more broadly, but also AstraZeneca. Do you have any sense at this stage what vaccines you're going to be distributing as part of this 20 million vaccine doses that you're providing? Because of course, depending on which vaccine it is, makes a huge difference to the kind of logistics that are required. You know, we are agnostic in the sense that we are happy to transport whichever of the four vaccines become available as part of this overall program. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, COVAX, uh, which uh, obviously is a partnership of a number of parties, including the WHO, uh, has collected $6 billion thus far. They need $2 billion more this year uh, to accelerate and move that five years forward. Uh, we will continue to move from whichever manufacturing site that those four uh, particular vaccines are distributed to wherever those uh, in-needs uh, populations exist. Uh, we, in fact, just uh, last week uh, in Ghana, working with Gavi, uh, delivered medical drones, uh, the first, uh, first uh, vaccines that were delivered in Ghana uh, in partnership uh, with Gavi, who we've worked for before on movement of, of blood samples uh, uh, in terms of uh, medical care in Ghana in the past. I was going to ask you this precise point, actually, because you've been working with Zipline as well, the drone delivery firm, and they've actually been on the show to talk about what they do. Just talk a little bit more in depth about what's going on in Ghana and, again, the, the role that you're playing. Well, you know, um, for many years working with Zipline, uh, who have uh, quite, uh, quite a, a long um, history in terms of using medical drones, uh, and in fact, the initial work that we did with them starting a couple of years ago, you know, in childbirth, loss of blood is a major issue. And they're so remote, some of these villages, um, that uh, we were able to work with them to move blood, uh, blood uh, um, uh, to uh, some of these uh, remote villages in very speedy time to save lives. Uh, we're leveraging that same experience now to move these vaccines uh, in Ghana. Uh, some of these uh, villages are quite remote. So the opportunity to leverage that technology, which will again maintain the critical nature of this temperature uh, as they move uh, and get delivered so that we get more vaccines into arms as soon as, as soon as possible. When I was reading about this, I was fascinated because obviously you have the situation where you get the vaccines from the airport, you then take them to a place of cold storage. But then that last mile that's done by the drones, you actually don't need the same degree of cold storage simply because you hope that they leave the warehouse or wherever they're leaving. They get to the point where they're going to be administered quickly enough that they can simply be refrigerated normally. And that also clearly would make a huge difference in some of these places in the world where you can't get that deep cold storage physically there. 
So, so we actually have a very large-scale dry ice manufacturing capability uh, at UPS. Uh, we, are, uh, we are creating tons of dry ice every day. So at the point of departure, we're able to ensure the longest shelf life within the packaging uh, to ensure that there is time to exactly as you said. Uh, once it arrives, they don't need to rush, that there is a reasonable period of time to ensure that they're actually giving the vaccine to those in need. So, for example, working with CARE uh, in their fair uh, and, um, and uh, uh, they have an initiative, uh, I beg your pardon, called uh, the FAIR Initiative. Again, part of this is equitable in 11 markets where you have healthcare workers who have not been able to get the COVID. So same approach is that we're able to get um, this vaccine delivered to markets in need and then ensure that they are stable enough to be able uh, to not be rushed through and therefore they can be actually applied to the individuals who are the intended recipients. Yeah, healthcare workers around the world, we need to get them vaccinated as soon as possible, That's however right. we do it. Um, I read recently that vaccine delivery is now 6% of the operations that you have going on all around the world here for, for, for UPS. What do you anticipate that rising to as we see greater proliferation of, of vaccines and more supplies coming on the market? How much can you handle? And it goes back to your point about the sheer amount of dry ice, I think, that you're producing as well, which I know is monumental. So uh, actually, just a little bit of context there. So we deliver roughly 25 million packages a day around the world. Uh, we have a very substantial healthcare segment. Uh, mm. So vaccines themselves would not be 6%. Our health care is a very substantial amount of our shipments. It leverages our technology. But in the case of vaccines, we did create this dry ice capability. Uh, we will continue to deliver vaccines wherever we're asked to in terms of that mid-ground between the manufacturing uh, and uh, the dosing sites. But, you know, I think the world needs to increase manufacturing capability. We can't wait five years for the world's population to get this much critical vaccine. Uh, and therefore, as soon as that, that, that manufacturing of vaccine in, uh, increases, we're going to be there ready to move it. So logistics will never be a problem in vaccine delivery. We've just got to no. get the supplies going. Yeah, that's right. Scott, thank you to you and your team and great to chat to you this thank morning. You, Scott Price, president of UPS International there. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday. And we're mostly flat. Interest rate sensitive tech stocks, though, are taking a bit of a hit as U.S. bond yields firm up in the session. Ten-year yields once again on the rise. But just to be clear, we are nowhere near. And you can see it there, that 1.6 percent level that we hit last week. Federal Reserve Governor Lau Brainard is saying yesterday that rising yields have caught her eye, quote, and that the Fed is watching things closely. Watch Fed Chair Jay Powell. As a result, he'll be speaking tomorrow in case he says anything further on this point, too. In the meantime, to crude now rally to fresh pre-pandemic highs going on, as you can see there, ahead of tomorrow's OPEC Plus meeting. Hopes for high demand, offsetting concern that OPEC will begin pumping more. And of course, that then puts downward pressure crude up some 20% so far this year. 
All right, let's head to Germany now, where German Chancellor Angela Merkel is meeting with local leaders to discuss lockdown measures as COVID cases rise again and the country's vaccine rollout stalls. Fred Plekin is live in Berlin for us. Fred, great to have you on the show. It's a case of to extend or not to extend the lockdown measures, and it's a bitter pill for Germans to swallow in light of all the disappointment over non-vaccine deliveries. How are they going to handle this? Why? Well, you know what? I think you're absolutely right. I think it certainly is a pretty bitter pill to swallow. And certainly there is also a lot of anger building up about that uh, slow vaccine rollout and the fact uh, that a lot of the lockdown measures keep uh, getting extended here in this country. And one of the things that we're expecting is that Angela Merkel is very reluctant to ease at least the significant points of the restrictions. There are some who are saying that restrictions could go on for at least another two weeks until about the end of March. And, you know, the street that I'm standing in right now here, it's got a little small and a lot of small and medium sized businesses, and they are by far the ones that have been the hardest hit. The clothing shops, smaller stores, they've been closed for months and a lot of them are yearning for some sort of relief from all of that. It's highly unlikely though that the majority of them are going to get it. Let's have a look. This isn't a birthday party or a wedding anniversary. Nope. It's Germans being allowed back to the hairdresser after months of lockdown, leaving both the coiffeur and his customers ecstatic. It's like Christmas, New Year's and my birthday combined, he says. I'm allowed to do again what I love most, working with hair. Hair and nail salons are among the few businesses allowed to open again in Germany since the start of this week. Other than that, the country remains in a hard lockdown. Shops, cafes, restaurants, all shut. And Chancellor Angela Merkel reluctant to allow for the restrictions to be loosened. First, we need to see how well we can manage contact tracing, the coronavirus warning app and reinforcements for health authorities, better test strategies and so on, she said. We then need to see how we can step by step allow for more openings without risking another exponential growth. Public support for Merkel's course is waning in Germany, especially as the country's vaccination campaign is only slowly moving ahead. This vaccination center we visited in Berlin is running like clockwork, mostly elderly folks and frontline medical workers getting their shots. The managing director saying most are grateful to get the vaccine. Everyone is really happy to meet each other. And so that's why the, the old people are very grateful um, to, uh, to be here and to, to have a nice treatment. But the staff also acknowledge they could be vaccinating almost twice as many people each day if they could get their hands on more vaccine. The problem, Social Democratic politician and health expert Karl Lauterbach says, is that Germany relied on the EU to order vaccine doses and it didn't order fast enough. Procurement of the vaccines was slow. Uh, price considerations were overwhelming. Uh, capacity was not given the attention it should have been given. So we lost time and uh, we are uh, uh, basically suffering from a shortage of all of the major vaccines. The German government acknowledges there have been lapses in its vaccine rollout, but says there will be a lot more vaccine available soon, as many citizens grow tired of waiting, as their politicians tell them to be patient just a little longer.
And Julia, unfortunately, that's probably what most Germans or what all Germans are probably going to hear from Angela Merkel at the end of this evening is to be patient just that little bit longer. Again, what we're hearing is that probably those measures are going to be extended until at least the end of March, the 28th of March. There might be some special regulations then uh, over Easter. But as we just saw there, there are more and more people who are growing uh, impatient, especially folks like the ones who own the businesses that you see behind me, those small and medium-sized businesses, which we know, Julia, are the backbone of the German economy. Uh, and what from folks are telling us, they say that every day that they're in lockdown, it, of course, becomes more difficult for them and their businesses to survive long-term, even after the lockdown ends, Julia. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And we're seeing it all around the world. Frederick Pleiken, great to have you with us. And uh, thank you for that update there. All right, coming up, imagine getting a cash payout every month for two years no strings attached. Sound good? Well, it happened in one city in California. And the results? Priceless. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. It was a unique experiment to fight poverty in a hard-hit American city brought about by an unconventional mayor who garnered worldwide attention. The radical idea from our next guest put $500 a month into the pockets of a handful of residents of Stockton, California, for two years. There were no strings except to see where the money went and if it helped. Recipients reported income volatility fell, that it helped them in many cases find full-time work, They felt better, and according to the survey, less than 1% of the money was spent on things like alcohol or tobacco. It was brought about by former mayor of Stockton, Michael Tubbs, who joins us now. Michael, great to have you on the show. We can talk about the politics of the former aspect later on in the interview. But, you know, when I read the results and we talked about this universal basic income experiment in the past on the show, I was so happy for the people involved, and I was also heartbroken for the people that didn't get this opportunity. But just talk us through, for the people that got this, it was life-changing. It's, to your point, and thanks so much for having me, it is incredibly inspiring, but also incredibly tragic that being randomly selected through luck to be a recipient of $500 a month over the past 18 months has meant the world a difference, particularly during a crisis and a pandemic. Um, It's been inspiring to hear about folks like Tomas, who went from part-time work and took time off work and used the $500 so that he was able to interview um, for a full-time job and get that. To folks like Laura, who talked about being the matriarch of her family, the $500 allowed her to deal with moving costs when her house was caught on fire through no fault of her own, and also allowed her to buy Thanksgiving dinner as the matriarch for her family. And, And countless stories of people who bought dentures who bought birthday cakes for their kids, and who all reported feeling better, feeling healthier, feeling like they can breathe. So to your point, I think the real tragedy is that there's 315,000 other people in my city, millions of other people in this country who can also benefit. And the data is clear. Guaranteed income works, an income floor works, and now it's just summoning the political will so we don't have to have a conversation about how 125 people um, did relatively well or did better despite sort of mass economic suffering. The statistics here actually are really important, just so people are clear. Uh, 50% of this money, the people reported spending on things like food and utilities. I mean, you mentioned things like birthday cakes, or I saw in the report the odd gift for a mother that they simply just felt so grateful to be able to do something like this that they wouldn't be able to do. I mean, these were 
basic survival spending that was taking place in many cases. But, Michael, key for me, and I think one of the criticisms of this is, well, people are going to do nothing or they're going to use the money and spend it on immaterial things and perhaps hang out on the sofa. The statistics show that 28 percent of people before they got this money were in full time employment. And that leapt as a result, to your point, because they could spend more time looking for the right job. They just had that little bit of freedom to get the right job rather than doing several part time jobs, perhaps, and just trying to make ends meet. Yeah, and I think that was the biggest criticism I faced over the past two and a half years. This notion that folks will lose their dignity because that's attached to work rather than their humanity. This notion that $500 was enough to pay to replace work. And it's empirically false. In fact, a guaranteed income made those who received a guaranteed income more likely to get full-time employment than those in the control group who didn't, which really, I think, pushes back to these harmful notions that an income floor will somehow rob the American people of their ingenuity, of their desire, of their natural entrepreneurial trades. That's just not the case. In fact, an income floor allows people to work better, work more productive, and work in more dignified environments. So I'm more super excited about that stat because when I'm arguing with Chuck Woolery like I had to do or with Sarah Palin, former Governor Palin, as I had to do during this pilot, it kept going back to, are you going to read, people aren't going to work, people aren't going to work. That's false. The vast majority of people in this country that can work do work. The highest group of people not working in this country is children. And a guaranteed income actually allows people to be more productive because they could pay for childcare, because they could pay for transportation, because they could pay for time off to interview for another job. I know. You know, one of the statistics that shocked me coming into the pandemic, and of course this coincided with the pandemic, which was something else, was that 40% of American households couldn't cut a $400 check in an emergency in the, in the richest nation in the world. And this was one of the other things that came out from this. 25% of people could pay, had enough cash on them to pay an emergency bill if they needed to. That went from 25% of people to more than half of people simply having the cash available to, to meet a financial emergency versus, you know, you assume going to other sources and perhaps, you know, creating more difficulties for themselves. Never mind the anxiety, which was something else that came out in this. The mental health aspects of this are so important. Well, particularly in a public health crisis, the fact that giving everyone economic security reduces cortisol levels, it makes people happier, it deletes toxic stress and, 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 and trauma, that's a big win, especially in the conversation we're having nationally about public health and comorbidities and, and, and how when people are stressed and anxious, they can't show up as, as their full selves. And also the timing, and I think that goes back to what you said in terms of tragedy, Thank God these 125 families were given the $500 a month before we knew what COVID-19 was. Because during COVID-19, guess what they were able to do? They were able to shelter in place for two weeks without fear of being set back a couple months from losing two weeks worth of pay. They were able to pay for rising utility costs and rising food costs as their kids came back. They were able to wait. They were able to navigate waiting three, four months for their unemployment benefits because they were getting that $500 a month. And again, in the richest country in the world, it should not be an act of lottery, an act of chance, or an act of luck to have your basic necessities met. Poverty, economic insecurity is so expensive. There's no reason why we should tolerate it. And now we have evidence that illustrates a guaranteed income 
actually allows us to live to our full values as a country in terms of opportunity, in terms of productivity, and in terms of creating the communities I would argue we all deserve to live in. Michael, are you going to show this to the U.S. administration? Are you speaking to anybody in the U.S. administration very quickly about the results of this and how it needs to be a discussion that we're having? Absolutely. We started a group called Mayors for Guaranteed Income. We have over 40 mayors. We took out a full-page ad in the Washington Post calling for reoccurring stimulus checks. We requested a meeting um, with the Biden-Harris administration on this topic, and we're excited about the 10 senators who also sent letters um, to the president saying we need reoccurring checks during the pandemic. So absolutely, I am 100% convinced it has to be a policy. The circumstances dictate that. So, Michael, you and I have something in common that and you talked about this the last time you came on, that you have amazing mother figures in your life, including your actual mother. And I also have an incredibly fabulous and fierce mother who I completely adore and miss like mad. You also have a fantastic wife as well, who I believe is about to become a mother again. So congratulations on that too. But she's also been busy writing a book about the mothers of incredibly well-known men and the stories behind them that we don't often hear about. You have about 30 seconds. Talk to me about the book and your fabulous wife. Oh, the threemothersbook.com by my wife, Anna, is a New York, it's a bestseller. It was um, editor's pick. And it speaks about how we often erase mothers. We often erase women. We also erase black mothers. And we can't understand progress. We can't understand history. We can't understand anybody without looking and interrogating the role of their mothers. She's an author. She's an advocate. She's an amazing partner. She's an amazing mother. She's a PhD student, as you would appreciate, at Cambridge, a Gates scholar. She's brilliant. And I'm just not saying this because she's my wife, but actually reading the book, I remember looking at her like, wow, babe, you can really write. It's it's really well done. And she also speaks about how a guaranteed income would have helped those mothers as they navigated through the deaths of their sons and their husbands. Wow, babe, you can really write. (laughs) That's the quote. Awesome. Michael, thank you for coming on. Great work. And we'll talk to you again soon. Michael Tubbs, former mayor of Stockton there in California. Thank you. All right, we're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. It's been nearly a year since the lights went dark on Broadway. Since then, some actors and performers have packed their bags and travelled half a world away to find work and to survive. CNN's Will Ripley has been investigating. The brilliant lights of Broadway, dark for almost a year. New York's iconic theatres, empty, likely for many months to come. Nearly 10,000 miles away in Sydney, Australia, The show goes on. Kismet, created by Broadway performer Reed Kelly and Australian acrobat Jack Dawson. The aerial straps duo, Two Fathoms. Right now, this is really the only place that both of us can be and do what we do. You good? What they do takes hours of daily practice, discipline, athleticism, sacrifice. I'm away from my family. I'm not at home. I don't get to see my husband. We FaceTime every day, and um, but it's it's been such a challenge. I'm good. How's your day? Kelly's husband, a doctor in Los Angeles. How's your day? They've been apart for almost a year. If Kelly leaves Australia, his visa won't allow him to return. Sydney, one of the only places in the world where theaters have reopened. We seem to be doing really well. We're really grateful to be here where everything seems to be really under control. 
Broadway star Gabrielle McClinton just returned to the U.S. She spent months in Australia as the lead player in Pippin. The Tony Award-winning Broadway musical was a smash hit in Sydney. Does that give you hope about Broadway? Absolutely. It definitely had its challenges, but we got through the season and people came to the show wearing their masks and we would get COVID tested every week. And when we were on stage, we were in our masks and everybody obeyed all the rules. And we did our due diligence when we were outside of the theater to make sure that we weren't putting people at risk. A model for reopening Broadway and beyond, says Australian playwright Tom Wright. You need political and social leadership to provide a safe set of circumstances for theatre to reopen. Sydney's Belvoir Street Theatre has been open for five months. Strict COVID-19 lockdowns worked, virtually eliminating local cases. The reason why Sydney is being able to reopen is because people at local, state and federal level took seriously the safety of the most vulnerable people in their society. And we're a reflection of that. The pandemic's devastating toll goes beyond empty theaters. Artists around the world are struggling. I've lost three people this year to suicide, and that's on top of the people that I know that have actually died from COVID. It's not just a job for us. This yeah. is our lives. We want to do this, and we need to keep doing this, so we're just pushing through and hope for better days. Giving hope to performers everywhere. Their future remains up in the air. Will Ripley, CNN. And now to a performer like no other, country music legend Dolly Parton, giving a COVID twist to a greatest hit. Vaccine, 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 vaccine. I'm begging of you, please don't hesitate. Receiving her vaccine in Nashville, Tennessee, she said it was fun to rewrite her lyrics, but she had a serious point. I just wanted to encourage everybody because the sooner we get to feeling better, the sooner we are going to get back to being normal. So I just want to say to all of you cowards out there, don't be such a chicken squat. Get out there and get shot. Get shot, you chicken squat. I don't sound like her saying it. I'm not going to sing either, but it is worth noting she got a Moderna vaccine. And last year, she donated a million dollars to Moderna for research. So you could say she's receiving a taste of her own medicine. What an amazing woman. OK, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. And in the meantime, stay safe. As always, I'll see you tomorrow. And Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 